Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. As far as I'm concerned, Daniel Schmachtenberger is one of the most brilliant thinkers on the planet today. He's a founding member at the Consilience Project, an organization that is focused on making accurate sense of current planetary developments with the intention to prevent global catastrophic risks. In this podcast, Daniel and I discuss a wide range of topics, including the following. What kind of thinking do we need to better understand and address current existential problems? What have all these problems in common and how can we address them in a better way? Which powers are currently ruling the world and why none of them is democratic? What is radical fragility and why is GDP a dreadful metric? What would be a better one? Are we currently fighting World War III? Are you curious yet? Well, I hope you enjoy the show, subscribe to the channel, and share the show widely. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Daniel, welcome to the Investment Turnaround. It's an outstanding pleasure to have you, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation today. So in order for the people... To, uh, to get to know you better, why don't you tell us what took you into the present moment in your life? What path, what significant emotional and cognitive events participated to Daniel Schmachtenberger? Oh my goodness, that is such an impossible question. Uh... Because uh, there's so many different ways I could answer it. So I, I guess one through line that is pretty central and is relevant to things I think we might discuss today. I was homeschooled and uh, by parents that wanted to kind of run an educational experiment of uh, letting their kids design their own curriculum. And this was similar to some of the unschooling ideas now, but before unschooling was uh, a thing. My parents' interests were um, Buckminster Fuller and kind of design science and uh, Fritjof Capra and systems science and kind of the philosophy coming out of modern physics and uh, world religions and spiritual traditions and, you know, the, the best kind of thinking stuff coming out of the hippie movement time period. And uh, so... Obviously, as a kid getting to design my own curriculum, being exposed to those things made a difference because no one's going to choose to study something they don't even know exists. And so it's nice to have those. And um, so I was, I was studying the sciences and interested in how the world works, studying the philosophic traditions around what we're really here for and what is, what is meaningful. And, um, and then in studying things like... Uh, the Bucky Fuller design science work, thinking about how do we redesign the technological substrate of civilization fundamentally. Those were kind of early interesting questions. Um, and I got into activism very young. 
that was one of the other big areas and it got to be homeschool curriculum time. So I got to do a lot more like frontline activism stuff and research younger than a lot of people would. And it, it uh, started with animal rights stuff and um, started with factory farming and then went to whaling and overfishing and species extinction and with PETA and Greenpeace and all those types of organizations. And that was the beginning of kind of existential devastation for me of how much human induced unnecessary suffering and just rolling atrocity there is on the planet. And then how can I consider my life a success while that's happening? Like there has to be something wrong with me that I can disconnect from that and just be happy to, to party. And so I remember the, the very first thing when I was like nine years old that I had this feeling around with factory farms was if they still exist, when I die, then I failed at anything worth living for. Cause I, I, I can't have a world that I feel good about where that exists. The hard part was I kept adding things to that list because, you know, then start studying extreme poverty and then start studying the things that lead to unnecessary wars. And then, um, and this was kind of like the centrally torturing thing for me was everybody said that these all are such hard issues that nobody's fixed them. And so it would take all of my life focusing on one of them to maybe have a little bit of a chance. And that means ignoring all the other ones. And I, I couldn't, I just couldn't. And fortunately, the system science focus started to give me a sense that maybe part of the problem was focusing on these things in isolation and not what interconnected them and the underlying patterns that gave rise to them. Why do humans make shitty choices? Why are we not good stewards of the technological power that we have? And, uh, you know, so there were things that I knew I needed to study to be able to even think about it well. So I, I... I went and did university studies and studied math and physics and things that I knew would be like important fundamental disciplines and uh, philosophy and then independently studying economics and social systems and things like that and trying to look at all of the proposed systems for how do we make a better world, looking at the UN SDG kind of model and looking at the the Bildung model, can we make the whole world like the Nordic countries and looking at the uh, anarcho-capitalists and libertarian models. And, the, and it didn't take that long to see how all of those philosophies catastrophically failed in the face of planetary boundaries and exponential tech, and that they were just nowhere near deep enough thinking for the actual nature of the problems. And that was a bummer because I think I hope, I, I think I thought originally that there were adequate solutions and I could just find them and join them and add energy to it. And so it was very devastating for me the first time I went and engaged with people at the UN to see. Uh, I remember the first conversation I had there was with a world food program director where they were looking at a solution to address world hunger, which was great, but their solution involved commercial agriculture going into areas where it doesn't currently exist to be able to feed the people in a way that doesn't depend upon shipping food from other countries, which made sense, except it was bringing more nitrogen-based fertilizers to more river deltas, which will increase the rate of dead zones in the ocean, which is an existential risk for the whole planet. When I brought that up to them, I'm like, okay, well, you're going to feed more people per year for a few years and then speed up the death of the oceans and everybody. And they're like, yeah, we never thought of that. And that's a bummer, but those are not the metrics we're tasked with. We're tasked with defeating kids metrics. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And then I saw that everywhere. And I saw that most of the work was not only not 
adequate to succeed, but it was causing other problems in other areas, worse problems, because we were defining the problems too narrowly and the world was more interconnected than that. And so this just led to having to continue to step back and say, okay, maybe we just need to do an assessment of the whole problem space well enough to know what adequate solutions would take. So that was that was kind of the central thrust of my life focus and all the various areas of study were what do I need to understand to be able to look at that? And, uh, so we were mentioning economics. Obviously, we can see that if I have a metric of optimizing GDP for a nation or GDP per capita or some metric like that, that war is really good. Uh, GDP goes up under war. That sick people that spend more money on medicine is good. That there's a lot of perverse incentive that addiction is quite profitable. And so it's like, okay, well, that's a dreadful metric. And yet we can see that underlying so many of the issues like bad medical systems and bad food systems and uh, driving addiction from supply side through manufactured demand is an economic system that has perverse incentive writ large. And there's something like $70 trillion that trades hands every day. And I'm like, if we got $70 trillion of decentralized human incentive, almost all of which is causing harm along a supply chain of action somewhere. Even if I had a billion dollars a day to spend that didn't even need to make money, just pure nonprofit, and I was maximally effective with it, and I'm going against $70 trillion a day that is harm externalizing, and it's easier to break stuff than it is to fix it or to build it. I can, I can destroy a house much faster than I can build one. I'm so many orders of magnitude off of being adequate. So I'm like, anything that does not change perverse incentive is not even worth doing. So how do we change $70 trillion a day worth of human activity to not have perverse incentive built in? Well, it doesn't look like our current economic system. It looks like a fundamentally new economic system. So how do we, how do we make projects that succeed within this economic system and externalize a bunch of harm was never interesting to me. How do we make a fundamentally, how do we make an economic system where the success of that economic system and the thriving of life are aligned with each other? is a different question. And, uh, so yeah, then one of the things I saw was, as I was looking at all these different problems and how they were looking at how they were interconnected to see how trying to solve one would move problems somewhere else. And we'd see that all over the place. The you know example that I gave about nitrogen runoff is one, but we can take pretty much any example. And, but then also looking at what do all the problems have in common at, as the, at the level of generator functions and perverse incentive is one example, but there's a number of things that are the underlying system dynamics. And by system dynamics here, we're not talking like healthcare as a system or, or uh, the judicial system as a system. We're talking about underneath that, the patterns of human behavior, what is creating patterns of human behavior. So I, I started forecasting also, I was trying to see, are these problems, are the problems getting better? Are they getting worse? And the answer is of course, both. And so you can, you can read plenty of books um, Pinker and Hans Rosling and uh, all those books on why everything is getting better. And if you cherry pick the, the stats and you decontextualize them, sure, that's true. But you read most any environmental metrics, not any, but so many environmental metrics and also catastrophic and existential risk. And you can see how many things are getting not just worse, but precipitously towards the non-viability of civilization worse. And so when I saw that some things were getting better, some things were getting worse, I saw a phase of civilization destabilizing and that 
clearly we didn't just need more of the type of actions that we were doing, more nonprofit projects, more impact investing, more UN SDG stuff, more laws being made and more tech solutions, because the whole body of all of that was not converging towards adequate because the pro every year we were getting more total catastrophic risks and higher probability on each of them. When CRISPR comes along, we have way more chance of all dying from bioweapons. With development of AGI, we have way more chance of dying from AGI-based risks. With the development of drones and the weaponization of drones and their ability to take out infrastructure. So it's like, okay, the, the total probability space of catastrophe is rapidly expanding. And if you look at the UN world, we haven't solved any of the SDGs. They were called the Millennium Development Goals before. We didn't solve them. The, we never succeeded with this nuclear deproliferation. Since the UN started, we went from two countries with nukes to lots of countries with nukes and faster nukes and better nukes. We haven't stopped arms races on a single new type of technology. We have an arms race on drones. We have an arms race on AI. We have arms race on cyber weapons, on bioweapons. We haven't been able to deal with any of the major tragedy of the commons like climate change or overfishing. So it's like, all right, we're our our problem-solving processes writ large are not adequate to the problems we face. So we shouldn't have 17 SDGs. We should have one superordinate one that is develop the capacity to coordinate effectively towards global level issues. If we don't have that, we don't get any of the other ones. If we do get that, we get all the other ones. So how do we develop better coordination capacities towards global level issues like arms races and tragedy of the commons and things like that. And uh, yeah, so that that's kind of been the through line is seeing all of the problems, seeing how they're interconnected, seeing what's underlying and driving them, seeing where the solutions have some effectiveness, but are inadequate and thinking about and working towards what, what would new problem solving processes adequate to the problems that we actually face look like and how do we bring those about? Brilliant. So how do we? <laughs> you mentioned AGI. I just wanted to explain AGI is this, uh, you know, it's a, um, like what artificial intelligence, uh, artificial general intelligence as an explanation. So how do we? What are the acupuncture points? Uh, obviously, there are um, enough smart people on this planet to uh, be able to develop this whole system thinking and come up with solutions. Why? What makes it so difficult for uh, for such people to come together and come up with solutions and implement them because obviously there are many many people who come you know have these solutions but they don't have the political power the influence the money whatever to uh, to make them happen so what are the fault lines of existing systems and what are the possibilities we have to find these acupuncture points and influence them so that we, it, it, just to frame me, uh, let me frame this a little bit better. You are went on record saying that we're currently facing World War Three, and uh, it's not kinetic, so we don't really see it. We don't really. We think it's peace and it's wonderful, and we all can whatever, whatever, be blessed to buy this and that and the other. But in reality, we are deep at war with one another, and we are on our best way toward extinction. It's only a question of time. So how do we save ourselves? It's just a simple There's... question for you, dear Daniel. 
So everybody knows that the thing we call politics and the thing we call war are a gradient of basically rivalrous interests. Uh, Von Clausewitz famously said, war is politics extended by other means. And, but it's, it's more like the other way. It's more like politics is how we sublimate war where we want different things. Um, and yet, you know, diplomatic warfare, economic warfare, cyber warfare, narrative and information warfare, population-centric warfare, are, are those politics or are those, well, they're outside of the domain of what we consider the agreed upon political process. They're not kinetic warfare. World War II was kind of the end of kinetic warfare being a viable solution for the major powers because any weapons that the major powers used against each other to really be able to deal with it could escalate. And we had weapons now big enough that you have a war that nobody wins. So after that, we had to depend on proxy wars, which we've done a lot of. We've noticed there have been no major superpower wars since World War II, heaps of proxy wars. Well, in order to fight a proxy war, you again have to base it off propaganda. Oh, they have weapons of mass destruction. No, they don't. But you have to tell that story to be able to go invade and do that thing or um, and that is a kind of non-kinetic warfare, right? So we fight proxy wars and we fight non-kinetic, unconventional wars. So is it fair to say that the world is in peacetime right now? No, I don't think that's fair to say. I think we can see the total number of cyber attacks that are obviously not peacetime. We can see the uh, increase in total numbers of catastrophe weapons. The first real catastrophe weapon we had was the bomb. And before that, the major empires of the world always fought. There were never times where they didn't fight. That was how we dealt with our border issues. Uh, world War II was the beginning of having weapons so big that we couldn't fight as the solution, or at least the major powers couldn't fight. And so the whole world before World War II and the world after fundamentally different, because before that, we weren't powerful enough to ruin everything. And so World War II is the beginning of technologically induced catastrophic risk. So we had to make, we had to be able to do something we'd never done, which have the superpowers, not war. So we had to make an entire new world system, a globalized world system for the first time ever. And it bought us like 75 years of no superpower war. There was a cold war, there were proxy wars, there were other things. And that involved mutually assured destruction. It involved a bunch of IGOs, right? The, the UN and the, uh, World Bank and IMF and all those types of structures because we realized that national governments only weren't enough to prevent world war. And so we needed these other things and a whole globalization system where we, we became so economically interdependent on each other that we had more incentive to do trade with each other than we did to war. And so we can see that the computer that we're talking on today, the microphone, the it, all of it, no country in the world can build, right? The From the mining of the materials to the refinement of them, to the hardware, to the software, to the satellite production that is our internet is communicating over, all takes six continent supply chains to make. Well, when you have that much interconnectedness, you aren't oriented to blow each other up, which is nice, but you get other problems, which is you get radical fragility. So you get a problem in one area of Wuhan and the whole world shuts down. Right, and you get you get cascading catastrophic failures. You have to to stop a virus in a world that connected. You shut down transportation in a way where now you realize the flow of fertilizer and pesticides that now got shut down just drove the poverty of the hundred million 
uh, poorest people into much worse conditions. And we had locusts throughout Northern Africa and parts of the Middle East because not having the pesticides. You can see like all these second and third order effects. Also, a major part of that world, that globalization world was we will use industrialization to extract resources from the earth way faster so that we can be so positive GDP that everybody can get more without taking each other's stuff. And the idea there is that if GDP is not high enough, everyone's desire to have more makes them go zero sum and have to take each other's stuff. And so the answer is there has to keep being more. Well, more with a linear materials economy where you're taking stuff unrenewably and then turning it into trash unrenewably, you can't run an exponential linear materials economy on a finite planet for all that long. And so what we see is that that Bretton Woods world that kept us from warring for like 75 years till now has just come to an end because we reach planetary boundaries. So we can't keep running the linear materials economy that way. We have enough uh, fragility in the overall system that the types of local collapses that are inevitable now create global cascading collapses. And we can't do mutually assured destruction anymore because we don't have one catastrophe weapon and two superpowers that have it. We have dozens of catastrophe weapons and many, many actors, including non-state actors, including people we don't even know who have it. Well, how do you do a force Nash equilibrium? How do you do a uh, mutually assured destruct? You don't. All right. So now we're in a new situation. There was the whole world up till World War II. There was World War II till now. There's a new thing where you could say that the orienting question that I find, one of them that I find most interesting is around why humans have not been very good stewards of power why we've been shitty stewards of power, which both looks like war, environmental destruction, and um, shitty social systems and subjugation and whatever. And we can see that as we've gotten more technological power, those same underlying issues of not being good stewards of power have just become bigger deals. Um, and with exponential power, like it's really important to get that the ability to engineer new life forms to CRISPR genetically engineer new life forms, this is not the power of an apex predator. This is not something that a gorilla or a polar bear or a orca can do. This is the power of gods. The ability to extinct species at 13 a day, the ability to destroy whole ecosystems, to build totally new environments, the, the Anthropocene where we are the largest force affecting the surface of the earth more than geology, uh, the ability to build artificial intelligence that has, that has the ability to paperclip maximize the world, the, this is the power of gods that requires something like the love and wisdom of gods to guide it or it blows itself up. So while this has always been an interesting topic of how do we become better stewards of our power, it is now a critical topic because rather than just having local wars and local environmental destruction, which we've had for the last 10,000 years, exponential warfare blows everything up on a finite planet. Exponential externalities ends a finite planet. <laughs> so Exponential tech is a forcing function for us to become good stewards of the amount of power we have or for the human experiment to complete. So a way of thinking about it, if we take exponential tech and the emergence of it as the center of our inquiry, which I think is the right way to look at it, we take a real politic view and just look at what is happening and what is going to happen. Just 
we, we can say that World War II was, there's a bunch of other ways of looking at it. This isn't the only way, but it's a, it's a useful way. World War II is a few competing social ideologies competing over a chunk of new tech that was all made possible by a level of science. So you've got communism, you've got fascism, and you've got capitalism, liberal democracies, something like that. And basically physical chemistry, right? Atomic physics, physical chemistry got to a place where the bomb, the V2 rocket, the computer and chemistry all basically came on board at the same time. And Germany was way further ahead than the Soviets or the US for different reasons. And we re realized that was existential and had to catch up. And so the US did the Manhattan Project and invested like crazy, which was not market investment. That was state investment. The market did not build the nuclear bomb, right? It didn't figure out computation. So the idea that markets innovate and states don't is utter gibberish because both Germany and the US and the USSR that developed all those things, the Apollo Project, Sputnik, et cetera, those were all done by states, not by markets. And markets have never done anything of that scale of development before or after. Um, so we can see, we can think of that as a few competing social ideologies for who would get the new tech, because whoever would get the new tech would rule the world. And we can see that the US kind of came out ahead. So we get a Bretton Woods world rather than a Soviet contracted world or whatever else. Well, the tech jump we're at right now, the center of it this time is computation. Computation gives exponential returns rather than multiplicative returns because I can make a piece of software once and then sell it an infinite number of times with no cost of goods sold and no cost to transport the bits. That's very different. Anything in the domain of atoms or energy, I have cost of goods sold and cost to transport the, the energy of the bits or whatever. So computation's at the center and at the very center of that is AI. And then coming out from there is the application of AI and computation to upgrading the computational substrates, quantum computing, photocomputing, DNA computing, et cetera, other critical computational capacities, crypto type stuff. Uh, and then the application of that to things in the domain of atoms and energy. So biotech by being able to apply AI to protein folding, nanotech because of that, material sciences because of that, robotics that are run by AI, all those kinds of things. That chunk of tech that is emerging right now is orders of magnitude more significant than the World War II chunk of tech. Who only those who are directing it will have any say in the future. Because it is that much more powerful and power has been what determines the future. And this is the real politic assessment. Right now, there are only two types of groups, as far as I see it, that are trying to direct that type of tech, authoritarian nation states and corporations. So authoritarian nation states, China is not the only one. And I'm not saying even that China isn't doing things that are quite smart and reasonable. Of course they are. But China is not leaving the development of its tech completely to a market that isn't aligned with the long-term plan of its country. It has a long-term plan for the country. It makes sure that what the market does is aligned with it. So if a corporation starts to do something that is too far outside of what would benefit it, like the ant group started to do, they bring it back in line. They have a huge amount of R&D themselves as a country, which so they're applying AI and attention technology and IoT and robotics and whatever to making a better country, not just a military, not just an economy, but a better nation state, right? 
And so this is why they have been able to not only make high-speed trains within their country, but export them all around the world. And the U.S. hasn't built one within its own country. This is why they have something like 94% of the supply chain on rare earth metals. This is why they, you know, have the majority of lithography and um, like really foundational things. So we can see that uh, an authoritarian style nation state that can, because they don't have term limits, they don't have a perverse incentive to only do shit that will create returns within four years so they get reelected. Uh, so they can do long-term planning because they don't have two parties fighting against each other. They have the ability to not have all their energy used up as internal friction and heat, right? So they can actually do fairly decently coordinated long-term planning. Well, that's just a more effective system, this particular point. So you see that. And then in the West, you see that the development of the exponential tech is mostly not happening by the government. Uh, we don't have see Manhattan Project type activities. We see narrow applications in the military, but the military is not the government. It's not how the state tends to the people. It's not a better system of democracy. It's not a better system of educating the people. It's not a better system of um, creating a healthy economy where people have something like uh, the possibility of upward mobility. All of that's left to the market, but the market <laughs> that is doing it, the people who are running it aren't elected. They don't have accountability to the people. They don't have jurisprudence of this kind. So you can see that the companies that are developing the tech are becoming exponentially more powerful companies. And they're becoming so powerful that they're more powerful than countries in many ways. Facebook and Google have more users than China and the US combined have people. And they have more data on them and they have more behavioral influence over them. That's fucking powerful, right? And not only is that not strengthening the US outside of GDP, even though they don't pay taxes proportionally, it's destroying the basis of the U.S. functioning, right? Those are running a business model that optimizes people's time on site, uses AI to optimize time on site, which happens by appealing to people's biases and in-group identities and all that kind of stuff, which actually polarizes people against each other so much that anything like democracy becomes impossible. So we see that the exponential tech is making exponentially powerful companies and actually destroying Western democracies and republics in the process. So that converges towards a new feudalism. And so we have basically exponential tech has two attractors. Either it causes catastrophic risk directly. And so you just don't have civilization anymore, or you get shitty civilizations. You have two options within each of those. Shitty civilizations look like authoritarian nation states that are empowered with exponential tech or feudalism that's empowered with exponential tech. The catastrophic risks looks like two kinds, exponential externalities, which equals destruction via planetary boundaries and environment and stuff, uh, or exponential warfare, which looks like different things that lead to escalation pathways to World War III. So those are the four attractors, I would say, that are out there right now. And they're all bad. They're all dystopic. So I'm interested in a new attractor. And given that only those who are directing exponential tech will have the power to have a say in the future, but we want to have exponential tech not be used dumbly in a way that causes catastrophic risk, but also not create a type of civilization that is undesirable for the majority of the people, right? That is not aligned with uh, participatory governance and high civil liberties and things like that. Then we get a very clear design constraint. The design constraint is that the number one imperative of the world, of civilization, if they are paying any damn attention, needs to be the development, the 
development and implementation of the new emerging categories of exponential technologies to making new social technologies, to making democracy 2.0, republic 2.0, open societies that are both aligned with the kinds of values that we care about, they'll be different, right? And they should be different. The idea that you just vote on propositions were the propositions you had no say in and they're made by special interest groups and they're all bad. If you vote yes, it benefits one thing and hurts something else, which is why 50% vote for it and 50% don't, it polarizes the population. That's not democracy. Voting is not democracy. Democracy is a way that people can participate in governance. That's a stupid system. So will the new systems look like just digital voting? No, they'll look like better ways to actually be engaged in the crafting of the propositions themselves. So we can come up with better propositions that don't have such unnecessary theory of trade-offs. And so it's not that we're trying to make exactly the same structure, but a digital version. We're trying to make something that's aligned with the same values of uh, both maximizing the integrity of the commons and maximizing individual freedoms and creative expression and like that within that. And so how do we engage exponential technology to make new social technologies, new open societies, that can preserve the right and advance the right types of civil liberties and values and guide the exponential tech safely so that it doesn't cause catastrophic risk. To me, that's the only imperative worth anything because if we don't do that, the other things won't matter. They won't end up being able to happen. So when you asked, how do we go about it? That's an answer at a very high level, but it's a starting place. Brilliant. Thank you. So let me just summarize it. Um, you know, the last thing that you said, I heard you say that um, we need to develop a new attractor other than the ones that are currently dominating. Yes. Um, and your solution or <laughs> and uh, another alternative is what Elon Musk is doing, getting ready to colonize Mars uh, because he I don't think he, he hopes or believes that uh, we will be able to uh, develop our consciousness to the point where we will be able to implement uh, the social engineering that you are just... Uh, if not, we will probably export the same social failures to that system. So the thing about the Mars colony that's actually great is not the Mars colony itself, it's the thought experiment. Why it's a good thought experiment is because import is really hard. And so... If I'm trying to build a civilization on Mars, it has to do everything without import. And so if I'm in a bubble where we're producing our own oxygen, we're all stuck in the bubble. Do I want any pollution at all for manufacturing? None, nothing, nothing. How many people can I have in prison that are breathing oxygen and not doing stuff? Nobody, everybody has to be meaningfully engaged. Well, how do I prevent crime completely and have a better process for conflict resolution? We have to do our own biotech. In that world, a GDP maximization isn't the thing that matters. I don't want sick people. How do I prevent, um, you know, health issues? So how do we optimize health? Uh, How do we make sure that all the new stuff we need to make, we can make from the old stuff because we can't get new stuff easily. What minimum set of tooling do we need to build the rest of the tools? And would we build the tech stack the same way that we did, or would we rebuild the tech stack differently? This is what's interesting about it. How would we do law? Would we import the same system of law or would we do law fundamentally differently? Would we even have the values that are the basis of it be rethought through? So the Mars colony is interesting for Earth 
if we take the thought experiment seriously enough that we start thinking about, oh, wow, we're powerful enough now that designing civilization from scratch is a possible thing. Well, let's design this one from scratch differently. What would that look like? So how do we? How do we? And, and you know, you may want to uh, dive into uh, the Consilience Project, which is your um, project, which I, I highly um, I'm, I'm fired up about it. So how do we begin to design a new social technology and re-engineer society, basically? What are the, I think the best words are, or what are the, the best levers to implement that? I mean, how do we begin? I, I, I think just like Elon Musk is uh, using his idea to go to Mars as a means to achieve the technology, to shift the mind and technology and everything, how can we do an earth shot on social engineering? Um, you may want I'm going to take a tangent. Yeah, sure. And just address, because you brought up the word term social engineering, and um, that word has a very negative connotation for many people um, in the U.S. very intensely. And so I want to speak to that. When we say social engineering, a, a social system, a society, a society or a civilization, we can think about what essentially is that. It's a way for a lot of people who don't all know each other beyond a tribal scale to coordinate their actions usefully. That's kind of fundamentally what it's about. And Tribal systems before that were different because there were not that many people and everybody knew everybody. And, but if we now have a place where I have to compromise my actions in some way for people who I don't even know, and we're all going to kind of get along well, and we, but how are we all going to get along well? And how are we going to do division of labor and specialization and then share the stuff that we produced in a way that creates more kind of wealth and possibly for everybody? We have to have some systems of coordination. So I think of, Civilization is coordination systems. Um, civilizations fail either because they can't bring about the order and coordination necessary, so they fail in the direction of chaos, or the way they bring about the order is imposed. So there's some, okay, here's rule of law, and we're going to impose this rule of law by force, and so then it becomes increasingly oppressive. And then it fails for those reasons. And so civilizations teeter between oppression and chaos, right? So we say, how do we get out of that? How do we have something that is not oppression and is not chaos? Well, we need order, but we want the order to not be imposed. So we need order that's emergent. How would we possibly have emergent order? This is the idea of a democracy or a republic or an open society, participatory governance. And you notice that they were aligned whenever they emerged in the world, they were aligned with some idea of an enlightenment of some kind, a social enlightenment that had the idea. And if we look at modern democracies emerging out of the kind of European enlightenment, the key in the European enlightenment was the philosophy of science and the idea that we could all come to do the same experiment, get the same result, and there was an inherently unifying property to the nature of objective reality. So we could make sense of the same world because what we're trying to coordinate is the choices we make. Well, what's the basis of our choices? Our sense-making 
and our meaning making inform our choice making. Our sense making is what do we think is going on? And what do we think an action would be that would move us towards the thing we want? What do we want is our meaning making, our values generation, right? So ultimately our ability to figure out what we value and what's going on and how we think we can advance the value is how we do choice making. So the idea that we need to, if we want to have coordinated choice making, we need to coordinate our sense making. Can we all come to be able to assess reality similarly? And we have to be able to coordinate our values. And so can we run a Hegelian dialectic, right? Can we run a dialectic where rather than just say that because it seems like you're optimizing for something else, you're evil, can I try to understand the value that you're trying to optimize for that has some real value? So at first, you're voting for Proposition A, and Proposition A is going to, as far as I'm concerned, hurt the owls in this area, so you must just be a non-environmental evil fuck. Except, I'm like, why do you want to do that? Well, for the economy, what does that mean? The, well, it means that you are actually in a resource insecure situation and your kids don't have job prospects. And that proposition A looks like it will actually give your kids a better opportunity to have a good life. So the, the value for you is the opportunity space for your kids' lives. Okay, well, maybe you're not an evil fuck. Maybe that's a real value. And maybe you don't even not care about the owls. You're just forced into a situation where that proposition unnecessarily polarized them. Is there a way to care and but you think that I'm evil because I want your kids to be poor for some fucking owls, right? Well, what if we just say, how do we take all the values and recognize that they are not necessarily opposed and try to take all the values before we come up with a proposition and then come up with a proposition that meets the values the best, the best that it can. We don't even try to do that most of the time. Now, a special interest group will make a proposition based on some very narrow value that of course externalizes harm to other things. And we're not even trying to do a better job of that. So the idea of a democracy though, and earlier democracies did try because of smaller scale. Like in the US, you weren't making huge choices. They were mostly in a town hall where everybody could just talk. And so a special interest group wasn't making the proposition. We were all talking, we said, what about this idea? Well, that's not quite right because of this. What about this idea? And you could leave sometimes without even voting because everyone would just agree this is the thing to do. The there was a quote by one of the founding fathers of the U.S., something to the effect of that, death, that, that voting is the death of democracy, because it means that we didn't have a good enough conversation to come to shared understanding. And then the vote was a way to sublimate violence. Um, but the idea of can we get emergent order? Well, if we can unify our sense making, that we can make sense of reality similarly, and we can unify our values. Can I try to understand your perspective? You can try to understand mine well enough that we say, now let's put all these values together and then let's use design process to design a solution that will meet everybody's values as best as possible. Maybe not perfectly, but as best as possible factoring the physical constraints that our sense making shows us. That's the right kind of direction to be able to get emergent order. Well, we can see that since the modern democracies of emerged, the world has gotten much more complex technologically, ecologically, et cetera. And our capacity for shared sense-making and shared meaning-making, meaning our training in civic virtue to listen to each other well with good faith and our training in the relevant areas to understand the world has gotten worse, right? And so social engineering the kind of social engineering that brings about order through imposition, we're not interested in. 
What we want is something that actually makes that kind of social engineering impossible because the people recognize propaganda and manipulation and those things when it happens because they have good sense-making capability. And where that is, so it's both impossible and not necessary because the people can actually coordinate. So what we're looking for is how do we socially engineer a world where that type of social engineering is both not necessary and not possible. <laughs> now, another way of speaking to it is conditioning of people is not avoidable. You can't not condition people, right? They're, they're going to be born and learn Mandarin if that's what they're hearing, or they're going to learn English, or they're going to learn German, or they're going to learn whatever. The can, just what they're hearing is conditioning them, right? It's conditioning them to think a certain way. It's going to condition their aesthetics, their values, their whatever, based on what they observe. So we have to realize that you can't not condition people. So given that it's inexorable, what is a meaningful human life what, what is a civilization that enhance, that makes meaningful human life possible? And how do we want to condition people such that they both have the best life possible and can contribute that we have a civilization that makes the best life possible for the people and people that are disposed to live their life in a way that in turn contributes to a civilization and other people. So I just wanted to say that briefly about social engineering is that there is an Can element I just of ask social a question before you yes. move on. Um, I'm German. I'm a German citizen, uh, half Romanian, and yeah. uh, Germany's been very well known for voting green. And uh, for decades, we now had the Green Party uh, in a leading political position in various states within, uh, and now they have the opportunity to really go away, go away from the opposition into leading uh, at the next election, leading Germany. And one of the, I'm referring to question as to how to implement what you just said, because one of the, and I am a, a green voter, obviously, but one of the reasons why they were not leading a leading political party over the past 16 years has to do, although they tried, has to do with, from my perspective, with the fact that they try to, well, first of all, they went into these never-ending conversations where no decisions were taken, or if a decision was taken, uh, they were trying to impose it on other people, like eating, you know, no, not eating meat on Fridays. And that, of course, that and I'm <laughs> I'm a vegan, so I don't uh, I don't have a problem with that. But that led people to not vote for them. So my question is, how do we optimize for the integrity of the whole or the wholeness in trying to come up to an emergent order? without ending, you know, in, in these endless conversations and not having to impose a decision onto people that do not agree with and lose political power and leadership for that matter. Am I making myself understood? Yeah. Thank you. I think the idea of the masses is class propaganda. I think that if I want to be a ruling class, the idea that most people are too dumb and unmotivated and lazy and irrational to rule themselves well. And so we kind of 
have to rule because we are the ones who know what is right and good. That's a very convenient belief for those who happen to think that they're part of that class. And so if I, if I look in, in, I'll speak about the US because I know it better. So if I look at the dumb masses that don't, that think Africa is a country and can laugh at them and whatever, which we see, right? There's a elite focus that we'll, we'll do that in the US. But I look at the schools they went to and they're shitty schools. Then I look at where do the wealthy kids go to school and go to a place like Exeter Academy. Well, at Exeter Academy, the average person becomes like a senator, right? And like the people that do the worst still become partners at a law firm. And I think if I took that person who thinks Africa is a country, who had a shitty school, parents, no tutors, et cetera, and put them in the same position and put them in Exeter Academy with the right tutors and teachers and everything around, they would be similar. So the masses are the result of how we condition the people. And this is why Benjamin Franklin said, if that the ultimate depository of the power must be the people, there's no other thing that is actually a trustworthy depository of the power. And if we believe the people too uneducated to be a safe vessel, the only answer is educate them better. Everything else becomes evil. It's a big damn task, but look at the options, right? The other options are uh, starting with the idea that I, I'm meritocratically better, right? I know what is true and good and right better. So I'm willing to like, let's say I'm going to do this thing about nobody's allowed to eat meat on Friday, whatever it is, because otherwise climate change and the whole world will end. And, you know, it seems like a, it seems like it's worth kind of forcing people. What I'm saying is, wait, is that a law? Does that mean I'm going to take someone to jail if they violate it? Does that, does that mean we're going to use a, a monopoly of violence via a police force with internal kind of military capacity to take away people's freedoms? Because I'm so certain that we know what is right, that we're willing to implement it with a monopoly of violence. Where does that go as you keep going with that process? what legitimate authority is legitimate enough to be maintain not being corrupted in the presence of that? So basically, when you come back to the early narrative, I said that the problems that we face today are not being solved by our current problem-solving processes. So we don't just need more business solutions and nonprofit solutions and et cetera. We need fundamentally new types of institutions that have the right characteristics to solve these types of problems. Well, who's going to build those new institutions? And it's important to get when we look at like the world has built totally new types of government and new types of institutions for 200,000 years. It was tribalism. And it wasn't until the emergence of the plow and baskets and a few things that we started to get the different types of empires. Right. And then that kind of emerged into certain dominant types of empires and feudalism and then feudalism for so long that like the idea of something like nation states and markets was that wasn't even an idea that 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 it would go that direction and that new thing and then obviously post-world war ii not just nation states but like intergovernmental organizations at a global scale and multinational corporations so the world does evolve its social technology and we can see that when the founding fathers of the u.s were founding the constitution they didn't have ai as an issue to worry about 
They didn't have 8 billion people. They didn't have planetary boundaries that were coming up. They didn't have such interconnected supply chains that a break in one area could break everything. They didn't have the capacity for a digital democratic system. They had to try to fit people in who would ride horses to fit them into a town hall. So they were not trying to solve the problems we need to solve today with their system. The people who created the idea of markets and the Scottish Enlightenment, von Mises and Hayek and Rand, were not trying to solve these problems. And neither was Marx, neither was any of the social theorists. So we need fundamentally new social theory that starts with understanding our problem space. Uh, and so the problem space requires new institutions and new problem-solving capacities. Those have to emerge from people popularly starting to want them, care about them, be willing to empower them and participate with them so that the power of governance emerges from the consent of the governed. <laughs> Otherwise, it will be imposed, which is its own dystopia. Wonderful. Would you like to dive into the Consilience Project as a contribution to achieving that goal of uh, creating, uh, developing a new social theory and education system to, um, to implement that? To yeah, inform totally. the public space and avoid, um, you know, what AI and what Google and, and Twitter and Facebook are doing? Yeah, so everything we're talking about is the problem space that the Consilience Project is focused on. And um, I'll take one more tangent first, just because I think some of what I'm referencing might not be grounded in example for people and might be helpful. Um, I'm guessing that most of the people who are listening to this are aware of many of the types of existential risk that exponential technology makes possible. If not, go watch Nick Bostrom give a short overview of it on TED. Um, but, uh, you know, briefly, things like nukes are hard to make. Not that many places have uranium. It's hard to enrich uranium. You can see who has it because it's radioactive from a satellite. It's not hard to make drone weapons. Commercial drones are good. You can 3D print drones. Being able to put the charges on them are easy. You can take out infrastructure targets that way. Infrastructure targets can lead to pretty big cascading failures if you know which targets to look at. We can see that that's happened a couple times recently, and they, were, they weren't even really good targets. They were small things, but you know, the drone a couple of years ago hit a Ukrainian munitions factory, and a little homemade drone did the level of damage that an incendiary bomb would take. Run that out a few years, see that tech getting better and think about it. And you're like, all right, well, how does, and now think about how, how cheap CRISPR gene drives are and how easy cyber attacks on infrastructure are. The thing that happened with the pipeline the, on the Atlantic coast shutting down recently where nobody could get gas. We've known about that for a long time. Nobody's done anything to protect for 25 years. We've known that was a type of risk. But now it's easy. It was kind of hard before. Now it's super easy. So if we have decentralized, meaning not just state actors, but non-state actors, if we have decentralized, exponentially more powerful, which could mean exponentially more catastrophic technology, how does the world remain anti-fragile in the presence of that? 
It's a big question, right? It's a big question. For the most part, Western countries aren't even taking the question seriously. China is taking it seriously. Their answer involves ubiquitous surveillance. It's not a dumb answer. It's a problematic answer. Um, it's a smarter answer than no answer. What's a better answer? We need to really, there are, I would propose better answers than that. But just to say, if people have not thought about how exponential tech causes catastrophic risks, go look into that. Uh, I have a podcast where I talk about that a bunch. That, but when the other example of how could any of these emerging areas of tech innovate in social systems, I'll just give a couple examples just so you can start thinking about it. You think about a new computer technology like blockchain or some other kind of decentralized uncorruptible ledger. What if all government spending was on a blockchain, which meant that it could be perfectly audited transparently by anybody? And you could see where the money flowed with a total provenance of data. And there couldn't be any missing money. And there couldn't be emails that got lost or burned or whatever because you had uncorruptible ledgers that were transparent. Well, there's a whole bunch of corruption that just can't happen now. You just made it impossible through a kind of technologically enforced transparency. That's pretty great. Like that changed a lot of stuff when you start to look at how much unaccounted for money there are in uh, federal systems. Look at AI technology. Look at the ability of AI to take a number of different faces and make a new face that isn't actually a real human face, but looks like a real human face because they averaged these different faces. They can do that with sound, other things. Someone actually just emailed me a proposition they're working on about this the other day, and it's actually a well-formed proposition. What if we use the same underlying AI technology to look at a semantic field of proposals that people have and come up with a new proposition that is the weighted center of all of those propositions? Could we actually factor a humongous amount of human input and be able to come up with better propositions where then humans can take those propositions and go through something like a div merge process to be able to come up with better refinements on the proposition to move it through? Well, that's not voting, but it's achieving the goal of voting is better than it. It's, and uh, what about the kind of attention hijacking tech that Facebook or YouTube have where you think you're just going to check for a second and then an hour went by? Well, it's taking unbelievable personalized data about your behavior, building behavioral models, and then being able to use that ability to control your behavior. What if instead of maximizing time on site because they have an advertising model, they were maximizing your rate of learning and development? They had a pedagogical orientation. Well, th that would be different, right? What about if, why do we not have voting in person everywhere? We can see Taiwan made the shift, right? We can see a few places are starting to work on it. Well, if you can do your banking online with public key crypto, of course you can do that online. And then you don't have to have voting be something that happens once it every four years or every two years, it can be a continuous process. And where you don't just vote yes or no on a proposition, you get to help craft a proposition where you can see the provenance of information that is leading up to it and who's influencing it. Maybe you can even do things like a qualified democracy, where before you get a vote on a proposition, you simply take a simple test that shows that you understand the pros and cons as 
generally stated, not leaning one way or the other so that you can't just get populist people that are coming and voting without understanding it. And that if you don't want to do what it takes to learn that thing, you can use liquid democracy to give your vote to someone who does understand it, right? So there's a lot of things we can prototype with that are like, wow, that's really different. That makes a whole new set of possibilities. What if you start getting lots of those together? Well, when you look at the rate of technological automation, both in AI and robotics, we're about to lose most of the jobs. Oh, but there's going to be new jobs that are comparable. No, they're not. Not, no, there aren't comparably in the same way. This is why so many in the billionaire class are fans of UBI is because UBI is arguably the cheapest way to tend to the unemployed underclass to keep them from being a problem. And so you get a centibillionaire class who are the ones that control the top of the power law distribution within a vertical, right? One of the things that happens in the new areas of exponential tech is that Metcalf's law leads to natural monopolies and power law distribution. So Amazon is bigger than all other online markets combined. And Facebook is bigger than all other social media. And YouTube is bigger than all other video players combined. And Google bigger than all other search engines. You get basically one owner of a whole vertical, right? That's not through government monopoly. It's through the natural monopoly of network dynamics. When we made antitrust laws anywhere in the world, network dynamics didn't exist yet in that way. So we didn't build that in. And yet this the essence of antitrust <laughs> should apply, right? Which means our legal system can't begin to keep up with the rate of tech changing the fundamental premises. Okay, so you control one of those verticals of exponential tech. So the decabillionaire, centibillionaire class, they get to compete with each other, coordinate with each other for class interests and compete with each other for who kind of runs the solar system. And then some increasingly smaller number of middle class who tends to those people's systems and then a much larger underclass that is just not useful anymore because robots and AI are better at most things. So we, we give them Oculus and UBI so they're not a problem. Like that's a shit world. That's a shit world. And that's one of the attractors right now. Now, that same tech can be implemented towards very different purposes that make a much higher quality of life possible. But again, when you take the, the tech, oh, so you take that tech's going to merge. So, all right, well, the jobs are going to get automated. Well, that sucks if the people need the jobs. Well, UBI is one way to make the people not need the jobs, but still with quite low autonomy and upward mobility and et cetera. But beyond UBI is something like access to commonwealth resources. It actually gets beyond just individual possession and ownership being the only way to have access. And being able to separate the meritocratic stewardship of resources from access to quality of life. Those are things that are both mediated by dollars right now, but can easily be separated, should be separated. Well, technological automation automating the easiest things to automate are the things that are most rote. The things that are most rote are the things that people like to do the least anyways. So could we direct this tech in a different way, a, a not centibillionaire class oriented, a not a short-term ROI, but a how do we make a beautiful civilization way 
where we say, okay, great. So we can automate the shitty jobs. Awesome. We used to have to financially incent people to do those shitty jobs because civilization needed the jobs to get done. So we made it to where the people needed the jobs. So the market forced them rather than the state forcing them because otherwise we called it totalitarianism and didn't like it. We'd rather let the market force them. Well, we just changed one of the underlying bases of capitalist theory, communist theory, everything, which is you need a labor force. You don't need a labor force. You have to rethink all of economics from scratch now. Okay, well, now maybe we don't need a system of extrinsic incentive to force people to do shitty labor jobs. And you can make a whole education system and an economic system that is oriented towards intrinsic incentive. What is it that, what what meaningful things could humans do with a life that they would have intrinsic incentive for? I don't have to extrinsically incent them to do. We simply have to support their capacity to do it. So the same technologies that are being implemented based on current easy market opportunity that lead to either dystopic worlds or catastrophic worlds could lead to really beautiful worlds, but it's not just based on the current easy market opportunity. It's based on designing it differently aligned with long-term civilizational vision. And I guess this is one of the key things is a system that is in the process of committing suicide, right? A a self-terminating system is not a system you should try to win at. And dollars are kind of like the scorecard of how well you're doing at this current world game. And so if I have (laughs) what the market currently incents, if I follow that, I'm not going to build a new system of incentive. If I want to build a new system of incentive where that $70 trillion a day of human activity is incented in a different direction, how I build that new thing is not going to be what's incentivized by the current thing. So it's going to be some people who make an evolution in their values first, who are willing to build new technologies in new ways, social and physical technologies together in new ways that create new systems of incentive that make it easier for other people to onboard into those values. But the, the beginning of a new civilization is always not winning at the previous one. It is always willing to fight a revolutionary war, to take some real sacrifice, to migrate to something because something matters enough that it's worth not continuing to just try to be secure or win at the existing one. And this shift in in, um, sense-making is the goal of the Consilience Project? I didn't even do consensus project. Sorry. Um, Thank you for bringing me back. The goal of the consilience project is to help this zeitgeist that the one thing that civilization needs to be centrally focused on is the development of new social technologies that both employ and direct exponential technology. The goal is to not only get that zeitgeist out there, but to get enough understanding about what those new systems must be that the design criteria for decentralized innovation can happen. So, you know, we're writing a bunch of articles. We have a a research team of people that have been thinking about these things in novel ways for a long time from different disciplines. We're growing that team if people have the right kinds of background and insights. And so what we're writing is where people can understand, Take any social system, take the fourth estate, take education, take law, take economics, governance. Fourth estate, media, if you're going to have something like a democracy or a republic, anywhere where there's participatory governance, the people have to know what's going on to be able to vote. 
and to be able to be civically engaged. So you need some uninvested way of getting everyone the sense-making. Well, obviously those systems were built with print as the mechanism. And we can see that the world has evolved into a way where they've all been captured by vested interests, economic and political interests, and then attention optimizing uh, social media technologies that deliver it to people micro-target the things that appeal to their biases the most, their in-group biases the most. So without a good fourth estate, you cannot have participatory governance. You need to be ruled. But the type of fourth estate that has ever been possible before is not possible in a post-Facebook world. So what are the criteria for a fourth estate that is adequate where people, for an information commons and an epistemic commons that is adequate that people can participate in collective choice making because they have good enough collective sense making? What, how do we do that in a post-digital world? So we have a series of articles we're building that help people understand what any civilization that wants that participatory governance needs in terms of an epistemic commons, why the technologies that have emerged have broke the previous answers completely and forever, and we can't go back to them, and what the criteria of the new solutions must look like. Now, exactly how to build it, we're not saying, because there's different ways, but what we're saying is these are the criteria that it must be. So now, if you want to build a blockchain organization, or you are a nation state and want to try to innovate as a nation state, or whatever it is, great, like work on these things. Same with education. What we can show how Emerging tech has destroyed the previous system of education and obsoleted it. And then say, what is education in a post-technological automation, post-AI, post-information singularity world? Well, must be these things, right? So our goal is to basically get the curriculum or the metacurriculum. It could be, it could be translated to different pedagogical levels, but the key insights so the metacurriculum that is needed for people to be engaged in the design of the future of civilization, right? To get that out there. And then to get it translated to where at least for most people won't be actively in designing these systems, some will, but they will at least be calling for them. So the people who are building them will be able to have support, whether it's political support, economic support, social support, whatever. So we're writing these articles and then trying to translate the info in the articles through things like this, through podcasts and conversations that are able to translate them and where people who do understand them will be able to translate the message to their audiences. And so you start to get a, a decentralized zeitgeist of people caring about uh, what we think is um, valuable for people to care about so as to be directing innovation. Brilliant. So building meta curricula, curricula for various disciplines around the world. Um, Ken Wilber, of which I am a fan, has um, experienced more than 60 disciplines, you know, that adopted the integral model. And so it's a, it's a long journey uh, for you. Will there, will there be a meta curriculum for investing and or entrepreneurship? Um, can what what is your plan? So let's say people start thinking about, all right, well, what are the risks associated with these various areas of exponential tech? What would it take to bind that? Can if I'm a if I'm a government agency, I can think about what state capacities do we have to do that, or could we make? 
I'm a nonprofit, I can think about that. If I'm a business, I can think about, or what kind of business could we build? We can also do things that are more creative than business as we've understood it. Things like a decentralized autonomous organization in the crypto space. Um, so all of those are different ways of trying to organize people and steward resource to build something. So, you know, if we look at the Gates Foundation, there was basically a kind of worldview that informed a philanthropic hypothesis. And it was the like, let's apply business metrics, kind of business analytic metrics to philanthropy. I would say that what we're talking about would make a basis for a new philanthropy, which is let's donate money to the projects that are working on building the new institutions necessary, the new civilization systems necessary. Um, because again, otherwise the billion dollars that we donate going against $70 trillion a day, it's not going to matter that much. So how do we actually build new systems that can scale to the thing that needs to happen in the same way that that could be the basis of a philanthropic, uh, hypothesis. It could also be the basis of a, um, return hypothesis. It says, okay, if we're not trying to maximize returns in the short term, no matter how nasty the thing is, but we're trying to create returns while and through having that capital support the most meaningful things that it could. And what we're pointing out is a basis of criteria for assessing what meaningful things are. Is this good design? Is it actually moving in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. I hope for that to become the basis of uh, investment hypothesis. And I mean, even just listening to this, someone can start to think about, oh, you have a piece of technology that harvests people's individual data and does personal micro-targeting to be able to affect their, direct their attention. That sounds like a very profitable business. Towards what aim is it going? And what are the secondary effects? Oh, it's going to be this thing called Facebook. It's really for dating. And then it'll be like for tagging pictures. Well, let's think through it a little bit. How does it pay for itself? It's going to be an ad model. How do you, so it's, you sell more ads based on more time on site. How do you optimize time on site when people want to get off and do things in the real world? Well, through the things that are stickiest. So how do you figure that out when there's a huge amount of stuff? Well, we use AI and we use their data. And we, oh, so the secondary effect of this picture tagging app is going to be that it drives addiction in the entire population and doubles down on everyone's bias and limbic hijacks and destroys democracy in the process. Awesome. No, I don't want to invest in that. Um, so... <laughs> Now, if you want to change the design criteria, right, this shouldn't have an ad model. People pay for the service, and now the service, they are the customer, and so you have a fiduciary responsibility to them rather than to the advertiser and the people of the product. Now we can actually do something that's meaningful for the people. Yeah, I'll invest in that thing. And maybe it has a longer return cycle. Awesome. Long return cycles are necessary to do things that aren't evil. Um, the short term money on money process. Like it's very important to understand that capitalism is not business. It's not the same thing. Business was pre-capitalism. Business was the idea of how do I make a good or service that people actually want based on real demand? And how do I make the best good or service at the best value so that a hopefully rational person will make a good choice? And in doing so, I get more money through production only 
of real value at a good at a good value, uh, in which case I'm a good steward of that money because I'm going to continue to produce real value. That's kind of like a very brief version of Randian market ideology. It's not capitalism. Uh, capitalism is once you start doing that and you have a big pool of capital and you realize that compound interest makes money faster and financial services of various kinds make money faster than the good or service because the good or service has a cost of goods sold and the money doesn't. Um, and the money has an exponential return on it and the other thing doesn't have an exponential return. Capitalism is about stewarding pools of capital to create more capital. And you know the saying that dumb criminals break laws, smart criminals make laws. I start to recognize, well, who makes laws? Lobbyists, who pays for them? People with money. Why do they do it? Because they can make more money if they do the thing. And uh, what do politicians do after they stop being politicians? Well, they're still economic actors. And, oh, great. So if I have more money, I can also change law in, in uh, the direction of the interest. So capitalism works to we can also create media companies. We can also fund certain kinds of media. We can also fund certain kinds of research. So what people even think is true is based on the shit that actually got funded. So um, to increase those pools of capital, I can pull on the levers of affecting policy, affecting media zeitgeist and style and like that, affecting even research and fun the fundamental ideas of what we think is true can affect all of that ultimately to be increasing optionality and power. That, that is not a system that is meritocratic where the more money you have is a sign of the more good you did. No, it's not, that's utter gibberish. Um, I can make money through production. I can also make money through extraction. And as behavioral economics showed, it's very easy to compel people to not be rational actors. So I can make money through producing valuable things or I can make money through producing addictive shit and stuff that drives FOMO, that clearly makes everyone's life worse. And given that the supply side, if it's a million dollar, a billion dollar, hundred billion dollar organization has way more coordinated power than the individual purchaser does, it's an asymmetric war to influence them where demand isn't driving supply, supply is manufacturing demand. Well, the intelligent, the whole base of market theory just broke. As soon as you can manufacture demand, the idea that it is a collective intelligence system is broken. It's not a collective intelligence system now. It's a paperclip maximizer. It is now an autopoetic process for converting people and the world into capital. Um, why did we go there? Because uh, you wanted to support our listeners, investment. the investors and entrepreneurs yes. to make better decisions on where to invest and where to yes. guide their capital and their efforts and all of their resources toward. And I'm grateful, very grateful for that. So financial services were kind of the beginning of the end of market theory actually having any real integrity because now I could not be producing real goods and services, but doing speculation and market manipulation, blah, blah, blah. And the ability for short-term money on money creating so much advantage that we didn't invest in real things. And then, you know, things in the domain of atoms have cost of goods sold, whereas in the domain of virtual don't. So I don't get unicorns in a year anywhere other than software. But what's app is not what the world needs. 
to be better. But all the money is going to flow away from it. We don't have money for green tech and whatever because it flows to the area where you get exponential returns that are making shit the world doesn't need based on manufactured demand because it's where the return cycles happen. That shit has to shift, right? So, um, so can you make a return in the current world with the money you have? Sure, doing some good things. But most of the opportunities authentically suck. Like most businesses, if they shut down, the world would be better, not worse. Um, most new businesses that are emerging will cause more externalities than the benefit they cause is worthwhile. Most of the ways that people make money will cause enough harm to the world that the philanthropy they do with that money will still end their life being net negative to the world. If someone wants to claim they're doing impact investing, just fucking be honest about this. Like, just don't do it as greenwashing. It's evil. Just be, just be a capitalist. Like, that's fine. Like, it's better to be honest about it. Otherwise, if you really want to do impact investing, what do you want to impact? Why? Like, what do you honestly want to impact? And look at clearly the second order effects of the things that you're putting it into. There are some things that are worth investing in. I want way more money going into fusion. I want way more money going into many areas of energy technology, into manufacturing techniques that get to go closed loop materials economy so we can make all the new stuff from old stuff into the types of nanotech and manufacturing that can make that happen. Those are longer term return cycles and they won't be exponential return cycles in the same way because they'll have cost of good and they'll have R&D upfront. And R&D in the domain of atoms is longer and slower and more expensive than it is in the domain of software. But that's the shit the world actually needs. And it can be profitable. It can even be super profitable because it can solve major world problems. So larger investments that are longer term. We didn't get railroads with short investments. Like the railroad wasn't worth anything until it went all the way across the country. And so the industrial revolution required long-term planning. How long did Notre Dame take to build, right? Like the, the short-term return focus is fundamentally destructive to life. So one of the first things I can say is have a longer-term focus. And then in the thing that you're investing in, is it solving a critical must-solve problem for the world? And what are the likely second-order second effects it's causing? If it's not solving a critical problem, and if it generates second-order effects that are worse than the problem it's trying to solve, don't invest in it. Wonderful, uh, Daniel. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, to speak with you again. Uh, I know it's two o'clock in the morning your time, so I I want to thank you so much for your graciousness of time and knowledge and information and inspiration. And uh, thank you so much for being on the program and uh, we will continue. I appreciate the education that you're bringing to people, Mariana. It was a delight to be with you and talk with you today. Thank you, bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.